Welcome to ACME Talks and Live Events. You are listening to a podcast from the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. This talk has been recorded in front of a live studio audience. This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes, which may not be suitable for younger audiences. And the opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Sean. I'm working public programs here, and welcome to Studio One for uh, another session of Live in the Studio, our monthly explorations of all things TV related. Uh, tonight, we are strapping on the leathers and taking a ride uh, with the crew from Samco in a Live in the Studio session looking at Sons of Anarchy. Um, with season five currently in production and the news that uh, a, season, a sixth season is scheduled to be picked up, um, Suns fans have a plenty to look forward to in the future. But tonight we're going to be looking back over seasons past, uh, four seasons in fact, of Suns and reflecting on the brutal antics of Charming's most addictive outlaw motorcycle gang. Um, joining us tonight uh, in Studio One, we have entertainment journalist, broadcaster, writer, and producer and co-host of the Box Cutters podcast and self-proclaimed TV expert. Yeah, other people say that too. A lot of other people say that too. Uh, Josh Canal. Um, joining Josh tonight, we have a freelance writer, broadcaster, and troublemaker, Clementine Ford, who has raced here right from the uh, airport, um, and the Age uh, Green Guide editor, Andrew Murphy. If you could all join me in welcoming Josh, Clementine, and Andrew. Thanks, Sean. Um, Sean, I think as people are coming in, I think this is the most leather and denim we've had in a live in the studio ever. So, welcome. <laughs> Leather and Denimers. Uh, Jay, I'm ready. Come on. Yay. So, who the hell is Sam Crow? I uh, really tried to find out what it was about Sons of Anarchy that made it as popular as, as it is. Uh, because I watched the first three episodes of season one. It didn't grab me. And everybody around me started talking about Sons of Anarchy. What's going on there? Why? Why? Why is that happening? And on the surface, Sons of Anarchy is a show about a motorcycle club. It's this kind of instant emotional response of outlaws, counterculture, the one percenters, the, the people that your mother told you not to hang out with. She really warned you against these people. We were... Oh, I've just lost that now. Sorry, Apple's shit. Uh, Wash your mouth out. Apparently, the connection doesn't lie, Claire. doesn't lie. Uh, it was sold to us like a motorcycle version of The Sopranos. And that's just going to keep happening. That's really annoying. Sorry. Uh, it, it was organised crime, loyalty, secrets, and these are all the things that Sons of Anarchy has in common with The Sopranos. But it's not really like The Sopranos at all, is it? It's not, it's not like that. Uh, it doesn't have that same kind of psychological drama that The Sopranos has. It, uh, the Sopranos was largely self-contained episodes with uh, an arc, and, and all of these episodes are really, really connected. Uh, I, I was trying to think of what Sons of Anarchy is, is, is more like, and, and what we have here is a, a young man who is next in line to lead his kingdom, but he is haunted by the ghost of his father, once the king, now dead. His father's brother, albeit in this case, only in spirit, marries the young man's mother and rules as king. The young man is a whiny little victim who can't make up his mind about what to do or when to do it or I don't know what's going on, the whole world hates me. And this is what Sons of Anarchy has to do with Hamlet. <laughs> 
It's pretty much it. That, that is pretty much season one of Sons of Anarchy. It's Hamlet. It's a boy who uh, wants to avenge his father by taking control of the kingdom and his uncle, who married his mother, is a bit of an asshole. Uh, that's season one. Season two changes things. By the time season two rolls around, things are different. Season two of Sons of Anarchy was where it really found its feet. Jax was no longer a whiny little shit, but now a man of action. Look at him, he's taking on little kids. (laughs) Gemma, his mother, went from being a strong woman who controlled all the things around her to uh, being a, a victim of both time and violence. Tara, his love, gives up her role as a victim to become the protective conspirator. And Clay is finally cemented as the true villain. He is at the centre of everything bad that happens to everybody in this series. Other people come and go. Clay is always there. We know he's always there to make the wrong decision at the wrong time. Bless him. Otherwise we'd have no drama at all. So... This is what it became. It became high-stakes drama. And uh, it no longer was the pretender to a crown that it could never achieve. It was the perfect TV show for keeping an audience hooked from week to week. And this was really something that we hadn't seen on TV in decades. This kind of high-stakes melodrama, this nighttime soap. This I'm never using again, by the way. I'll go back to clicking. You know what I'm thinking of when I think of this late night, late night soap opera drama? I'm thinking of Dynasty, or more correctly, Dynasty. (laughs) Uh, it, It was Dynasty for a new millennium. Uh, when family fights needed the added excitement of drugs and guns and sex and violence, more so than we had in actual Dynasty. And, and that's really why we're here tonight. We're, we're here to explore more about the medium and <clears throat> uh, more about how this show filled a void and found an audience that was just sitting there waiting to be picked up. It was there. We were hungry for this kind of drama that we hadn't had in the past. And it might be about loyalty. But it's not The Shield. And it's not The Sopranos. And it might be by Kurt Sutter, but it's not The Shield. It's, it, it's very different to those shows. Those shows both pushed the boundaries of television and really explored the concept of an anti-hero. But Sons of Anarchy embraced a part of television that we thought we had lost. Have you got the clicker? I do. Yeah, let's try that. Really embraced a part of television that that, uh, we thought we had lost. This high-stakes drama, uh, the action of 1980s television was brought into a modern context. And... Each week an episode ends with someone being arrested or someone being shot or blown up or hanging off a cliff. It really fuels its own consumption and it hits us with a need to be involved in somebody else's life. Uh, Later on in this evening, we're going to hear the story of a man who discovered a love for Sam Crow and then travelled deep into its heart. But right now, let's hear a little bit about uh, the, the hidden lines and, and uh, the, the mothers and the lovers of the men of the Sons of Anarchy Motorcycle Club. And please welcome Clementine Ford. I thought I'd have a bit more time to leave this charging over in the corner, but... Um Hopefully it won't run out of batteries. Sorry. <laughs> it's all right. I'm sorry. I'm really, really bad at 
doing the, the ad lib thing, so I'm just going to kind of be reading a little bit. Um, <clears throat> sorry I made everyone start late as well, by the way, notoriously late, but this time it wasn't my fault, it was the aeroplane. So I'm typically going to talk about the women. Um, Josh, would you mind just putting a picture up of Gemma? Yeah, sure. Because I'm going to talk about Gemma in particular. I've got the YouTube clips organised, but have I got control? Useless with photo uh, with PowerPoint. You can find it while I talk. So Gemma Tellamoro, she's the archetype of the number one old lady. She's brash. She's a little bit slutty. She's bad. She won't let anyone stand in the way of what she wants. She's like the baddest grandmother you'll ever meet. And what she most often wants is to keep the club together or the family as she thinks of them and indeed as the sons think of them too. But she's also aware of her secondary role within the intensely patriarchal community of Sam Crow. And, you know, indeed all motorcycle gangs and my extensive experience of them. Um, while Gemma may wield a lot of power as the number one old lady, or top dog, so to speak, she also is, accepts quite readily this idea that the club comes first and that the club is one where women need to band together to support the men. Um, there is an element, obviously, of female support of each other, as we can see with the uh, evolution of her relationship with Tara, but fundamentally they kind of understand that they're there as the support for men. They're the, the refuge for the men who run Sam Crow. Um... Yeah, they rest easy in the knowledge that at the end of a hard day being the big bad outlaws of the road, these big tough men will go home to the women who offer them shelter and love and, and who they can kind of strip all that stuff away. The very name that Sam Crow goes by, the sons, is one that speaks to maternal power and deference. And indeed, in many ways, while Gemma would never overtly interfere with Sam Crow business, she really is the spring from which all life flows in that community. Outside of the relationship she has with Clay and Jax, she still provides a maternal outlet to the men, uh, which can be seen specifically in season two when Tibbs is really uh, he's informing to Agent Stahl. He's nervous about what the club might do to him and she takes on this incredibly maternal role with him even though they don't seem to be too different in age and whether or not that's because she's Clay's partner as well, um, I'm not sure, but she definitely has the, the counsellor's edge as well as the bad old lady edge to her. Um, her position within the club and on the series speaks to the very delineated power structure which sees women operating with the within the bounds of what's available to them in order to gain status. For the limited power structure that is available to women within these communities, you can see that from the, you know, the sprawling bodies of women in the clubhouse and the, the scenes when they sort of kind of pan in after a big party and there's just like these drunk motorcycle guys lying there with half-naked women lying all over them. That can, there can be absolutely no power or prestige or anything in that situation, being a woman who doesn't have a connection to one of the guys. Like the ultimate kind of aspiration is to become someone's old lady and this is a path to power. And when I was putting this together, I was thinking that in completely different ways, it kind of it kind of sort of reflects on a community like, like a heavily male sports, a sporting community like rugby. So for a lot of women in very uh, rugby-oriented towns or, or small towns in Australia where rugby kind of rules, the only path they really have to being able to be involved in that community is as a, is a, as a wife or a girlfriend, which perhaps kind of explains the rise of the WAG. Um, but then when women, obviously, you know, there was the case with the Four Corners story a couple of years ago and, and the woman who was interviewed on that and she, she said that she was a willing participant in you know, having lots of sex with lots of football players but she hadn't actually been in, you know, a, an established relationship with any of them and she was howled down by the people in the public for being, you know, a whore and a slut and someone who didn't respect herself. But that's kind of the difference between these two roles, that as soon as you achieve this this position of being branded as someone's old lady, as uh, is the case in Sam Crow, then you've, you've really kind of gained for yourself a lot of power and a lot of status within these very limited communities. Um, this is me going off tangent there. <clears throat> and so it's to Gemma that Zobel and his gang look to when they're seeking to disrupt and fracture Sam Crow. Um, you can argue all you like for matrilineal power in the club, but the bottom line is that the men are the leaders and the women are their property. This is most clearly seen in the casual cavalier 
way the non-aligned women, as I said, are treated within the groups. Frequently the clubhouse scenes will show the sprawled out men, um, the naked ladies. With Cherry, the woman who in series one is interested in the prospect, um, she kind of bridges the gap between being that woman and achieving her goal of becoming the prospect's old lady. Um, uh, they've aligned themselves to these situations so that they can let the gang, uh, the club members know that they're available and thus elevate up the ranks. Um, with Cherry, she's used by Clay to pay back the prospect for being caught objectifying Gemma when Clay overhears the prospect talking about, I can't remember the exact line, but it's something about how sexy Gemma is, how I'd like to bang her or something. Milf chubby. <laughs> Milf, that's right, yeah. Um, Clay doesn't like this because... You can treat women like property within Sam Crow, but not the old ladies, or, or certainly not the ones who are right on the top of the pile. And so Clay re responds by noticing that the prospect is interested in Cherry and basically saying, Cherry, come and fuck me in the bedroom. Cherry doesn't have a choice in this society, which is obviously like insane to me, but um, she has a very clear goal of where she wants to be and where she wants to end up, and she knows that getting there, this is the price that she has to pay in order to get there. Um, so when Taryn voices her desire to be the prospect's old lady, it's to Gemma that she speaks to and seeks permission because whilst that gains her privilege and power within the male structures, it's really the female structure that she has to kind of be accepted by. So she seeks permission from Gemma. The men may be able to take whoever they want and however they please outside of the old lady code. But entering the matriarchy requires acceptance from the queen bee, and that's Gemma. And she, she's not very nice to the other women, really, um, as we saw when she hit Cherry in the face with a skateboard. This is partially one of the reasons why Gemma and Tara clash so much, because Tara isn't just any old lady. She's Jax's old lady, which makes her second in command and also successor to Gemma's crown. Um, it would be complicated enough within the coded power structures of Sam Crow, but Gemma's also caught, I think, in this reverse Oedipal dilemma, where she's not in love with Jax, but she desires to be the most important, influential woman in his life because Gemma really is driven by, as she says, you know, this love for family. But I think probably um, we learn later on that she's had a bad relationship with her mother, um, not fared much better with her father. And so she places all of this emphasis on family and yet has really had to go alone her whole life and so isn't used to trusting other people to share that kind of responsibility. So it sort of makes sense that she'd be suspicious of Tara in the first place. We do see them develop this quite beautiful relationship along the way. Um, Tara poses not a threat not just to her position in the club, part of which, as Josh pointed out earlier, must surely be about her age and sense of sexual attraction, um, which comes up later on in the rape arc that I'm going to talk about, but also to her relationship with Jax. If Jax has another woman to seek advice from and to seek this idea of refuge in, where does that leave Gemma? So her love-hate struggle with Tara is very cle cleverly used to demonstrate, again, the limited power options available to women within this system, and thus how important they are to be able to obtain them. In the final episode of Season 2, Tara and Gemma have come to a familial understanding with Tara's support of Gemma through the rape arc bonding the woman in a way that's unspoken, their understanding that they can be used as weapons against the men, their mutual knowledge as women operating within this system. And I suppose it kind of taps into that, you know, if, if Sam Crow and if Sons of Anarchy is about masculinity, it's every bit as much about femininity or the bonds that tie women. Um, their alliance within a system that relies on them being considered secondary the Grecian figures of battle that the men go off to fight their war for, as we saw at the end of that first clip. So these things combine to create a solid, if not fractious, bond between the two women who have the most potential to influence Sam Crow's leaders, but they do kind of get there in the end. But it's Gemma's story arc in season two that really speaks volumes about the women's role in Sam Crow and in all communities operating within the show, and her loyalty in particular. When Zobel arranges for Gemma to be kidnapped... Uh, interestingly, using the help of Polly, his daughter, and so involving her in this, just showing, I think, how indoctrinated she's become within their own system. I mean, it would be tricky to make a show about a white supremacist gang, but take the white supremacist bit out of it and you could, you could film another series based on their gang and, and you can even see those little bits of humanity, like with Polly falling in love with um, the Irish guy 
can't remember his name, um, Edmunds, I think, and, and seeing that she's sort of really just been this kind of person who's been brainwashed through the system probably in as much as Jax has been. She just happened to be a woman. Um, <clears throat> so when she uses, she's used to trap Gemma into this situation where she's gang raped by Weston and two goons who are never really revealed, um, Zobel remarks of the plan to Weston, without their mommy, they're just a bunch of scared little boys. So the practice of using rape as a weapon of war stands here because they do believe that they're engaged in warfare. Zobel wants to destabilise Sam Crow, yes, but he also wants to send them a message by ruining, ruining their mother figure. Of course, he doesn't take into account the strength of Gemma, as Tara points out at the end. You know, she's just this basically unconquerable woman and, if anything, grows stronger from this experience in an awful way. Um, so rather than deli- <coughs> deliver his message as planned, she keeps the secret of the rape from Sam Crow. Why would anyone hold on to a secret like that, particularly when she has the arsenal of an outlaw bikey gang with guns at her disposal? Because she alone holds the key to the message that Zobel's trying to send, and by underestimating her commitment and importance to the club and how she views the club as being her family, he ignores one of the club's greatest strengths. So when she explains her refusal to tell Clay and Jax like this, um, it's mostly true, I think. I think she doesn't want to hurt the club and she doesn't want them to win, whoever this nameless group is, which isn't even really clear if she's just talking about Zobel or if she's talking about a number of incidents in her life. But I also think that there's an element of just pure Gemma in there, that having been overpowered, humiliated, defiled and abused, she just simply refuses to cast herself in a position where people are going to look at her differently, where the men in her family will look at her differently and will remove somehow the strength that she's demonstrated to them. And as she says to um, Tara later on when she's talking about Clay and the supposed lack of sexual interest that Clay has in her now, not recognising really that Clay's firstly probably pretty stressed out by what's going on, but also that she's sort of been pushing him away through the whole season and he doesn't understand why... She says men, men want to own their pussy or men have to own their pussy and once someone else has had it, they don't want it anymore. So she's really wrapped up in this idea of her value diminishing based on what's happened to her but also I think probably began the series being a little bit concerned because she certainly dealt with the Cherry situation very poorly. Um, she definitely sees her strengths as being tied to her physicality as well as to... The, her emotional role within the group and what they did to her really kind of challenged and threatened her own position in her own family and she just refuses to let them do that to her and that's one of the reasons why she doesn't want to tell anyone about it. <clears throat> so this primal urge has nothing to do with the club at all and everything to do with her own survival instinct. Gemma Tellamoro is nobody's pawn and she's nobody's weak woman to do with as they please. But of course when she recognises that the club is going to be ripped apart and she realises that she can bring Jax and Clay and the club back together by sharing this incredibly personal thing. Um, not only does it work, obviously, but also it speaks to these... The way that Jax responds and the way that Clay responds is a natural instinct for anyone who would find out that someone that they loved had had that happen to them. But it casts her in this very vulnerable role to them that is about their masculinity coming back together to join to protect something, which kind of is at the heart of their bond of brotherhood, I suppose, that it's really exclusive to themselves and how they keep a tight lid on what's going on in their family. Thank you very much. Um, oh, please. Please come to the couch for interrogation. Oh, such a sap. Oh. Yeah. Oh, I'm being interrogated. Oh, yeah, you're being interrogated. That's that's what I do now. Also, uh, that's dangerous. Just it's got wheels on it. Yeah, and we we try to chuck it in, but it's just don't don't cry too violently. I think is the. It's a cult. I I want to know about the the women who are like collateral damage. Donna and I think it's. Is it Lila, the pawn? Is that Lila? Is that her Lila, name? yeah. Uh, 
bashed to death down the Oh, no, side. no, no, that, that no. Lila's the one who ends up with Opie. Oh, well, it ends up um, with Opie, the other one. Luanne. Yeah, yep. I knew it was a L something. Uh, well, it's interesting as well with the, before even getting onto the collateral damage of Donna and Luanne, you know, there's obviously such an horrific storyline with Gemma. But I mean, rape is not going to be something that's unheard of in this community. Mm. They're, they're a motorcycle club, I'm sure. I'm pretty sure there's some, some no. questionable consent has happened in the past. Yeah, I've, uh, friends live in the same street as the uh, Comancheros. I've heard questionable things happening. Uh, I think that's, you know, that's part of the nature of a motorcycle club. They wouldn't be, this wouldn't be foreign to them. Uh, this idea that, uh, but, but it's, it's this idea that this thing that might be acceptable for them to do to others is happening to one of their own. Mm. I think that's, that's what brings the family together, is that, you know, not, not one yeah. of their own. Uh, well, I'm sure, and I'm sure the same, if they retaliated by doing the same thing to Polly, you know, I'm sure that the same levels of emotional distress would have been felt in um, Zobel's gang. Yeah, and, uh, but then, but rape versus murder. Uh, how does, uh, how, how does, how does that uh, sit with, with you as far as the, the way the show treats women? I mean, w women seem a lot of the time just to be there as victims or as plot devices. I think that probably, with the exception of Tara, the, the sort of um, general kind of assumption that you make about a lot of these women is that they've come from very victimised places in their lives. Yep. And this is a way for them to earn protection if they, can, if they can establish themselves in a position as, like I said, as an old lady. This is a way for them to earn protection. Not always. Obviously, Donna was killed. But um, it's a way for them to kind of escape from that cycle of victimisation that perhaps makes them feel um, part of something. You know, the, the, the tragedy of Donna wasn't that she was being killed to get back at anyone. She was meant to be Opie. Well, yes, yes. She just happened to be in the way. You know, but another interesting female character in it is Agent Style. When, um, when Gemma says to her, you know, unscrew your dick, it's fun being a woman or it's fun being a girl. Like, it's, I mean, Agent Styles in her own community as well. And if anything, really, she and Gemma have a lot of fundamental things that they could bond over. Styles very much a woman making it in a man's world. You know, she, she doesn't have any female colleagues. I think that that's probably pretty deliberate on the, you know, Kurt Sutter's part. Mm. Um, they've got all of these things that they have in common and also that Styles a survivor in lots of ways. We don't know really what's you know, formed her past. Um, and yet they, they they're positioned on completely opposite sides of the fence, you know. So it's sort of that hierarchy of power and victimisation that people will always align with, the, the, with their family and with their community. And if you get in the way of that, you know, that's the collateral damage. Certainly a lot of men have been victims as well in Sam Crow. <laughs> uh. It's just, it's just that men usually aren't used, in any of these circumstances, men usually aren't used to get at the men. You know, it's yeah. a very primal thing to say, well, we want to get at you, so we're going to rape your wife. And, and maybe, maybe I, I'm, I'm reading Sons of Anarchy all wrong, maybe they're not a, a, a rapey motorcycle club. Uh, <laughs> Sam Crow, not rapey. Not rapey. Because <laughs> if you think about it, whenever they have strippers live in their clubhouse... They're always wearing pasties. Like, there's a little bit of humility around that. Yeah, but I don't know. I think that the incident with Clay and Cherry was pretty telling. That if you have a certain degree of... Th that wasn't even his clubhouse. No. He was it, a guest in someone else's clubhouse. It was, it was the next day. And his oh, no, it, was, it, was by, it was by then. It was the Sons of Anarchy clubhouse by that time. Was, yeah, patch but, over. but I mean, he was, a, he was a guest, though, really. It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't their territory. These weren't their women. And yet he still had the power to walk in and say, I want her. And she, she complied. I mean, you can say that there's a certain level of consent there, but there's obviously not a level of respect for, 
for anyone who exists outside of the echelons of Sam Crow, but particularly the women who they use. They don't have use for... Well, I suppose the only man that they use outside of Sam Crow in a way that's dismissive is... Um, I can't remember his name. But the, the masturbator? The chronic masturbator. <laughs> Um, and that's because he's he's sort of kind of positioned as being not really a man anyway, you know? Like, he's not... I mean, he's obviously a very virile man, but... Um, oh, that and Unser. And Unser really is more aligned with Gemma. Yeah. Unser is the... Uh, kind of the, the most... He's, he's really the most sympathetic of any of the characters in, in the show. And in uh, if you compare... Uh, if you compare Sons of Anarchy to, to things like uh, Sopranos or uh, The Shield or Deadwood, where the women are always used as sympathy, in Sons of Anarchy they're not. They're not mm. used as audience sympathy. They're used as another arm of the motorcycle club, uh, another way for manipulation <laughs> of the town of Charming. And well, you're right. And when you talk about um, Hamlet, I'd never thought about it like that before, but there's also definitely an element of Macbeth in Ah, in Gemma, absolutely. But I don't know whether or not that's just because that's a trope that's really easy to to write women to, or if that's deliberate. Well, it it happens in the first series, but not much after that. In in the first series, I think in the first episode, she says, I just want to make sure he's taking after the right father. Yeah. uh, Being that, uh, that sense of, I want to take control of this whole situation and uh, early on we're led to believe that she's the one who's really running everything uh, and that, that that doesn't end up being the case it turns out that no one is running everything it's, it's mm. quite chaotic and uh, it's every man and all women for themselves I think that the thing with Unser that makes him so interesting is that he his relationship with Gemma is so much more equal than her relationship with any other man in the series because she doesn't have to play a role with Unser. You know, she doesn't have any responsibilities to him. They, we assume that they're childhood friends because he remembers her from... or Well, certainly he remembers her from being a child. Mm. Um, and his sympathy for her and his desire to protect her doesn't come from this really paternalistic kind of place. It doesn't come from a sense of her being his property. It... It, as well-intentioned as that might be within the club, it, it really comes from him caring about her and, you know, loving her. So I think that their, their relationship is really very underplayed um, within the series, but so strong. Probably mm. one of the strongest relationships, I think, in the series. I think it's, it, it's built on uh, the, the trust of years of damage as opposed to... Uh, Tara and Jackson's relationship, mm. which is really built on, uh, we have a secret together, mm. and that secret is that we had fairly ordinary sex next to a bleeding corpse. <laughs> uh, so is my understanding of that scene. I don't know. I'm not, uh, but there's at least three instances of, of rape in the first two seasons, and that's Gemma's story. Uh, Tara's attempted rape. Yep. And the rape that um, Gemma finds the perpetrator of, of the little girl in series one. Yes. You know, and they, we, we, you do have this sense that the club punishes men who, who abuse women, um, certainly women in their community, but also children. How far out that kind of extends, I don't know. I, it's, I, I just realised they call themselves the Sons of Anarchy, but they are really... All about laws. <laughs> they, they're not. They have nothing to do with anarchy at all. They're all about. The whole show's a lie, people. It's a lie. Uh, thank you very much, Clementine. That's that's excellent. Can please, I stay sitting here? Please or? stay on the couch. Enjoy. Have a beverage. Oh, so uh, exciting! Water. Wow. It's, yeah, we got we got beverages and. So it's important uh, to hydrate. And if you want um, snacks. There's a machine outside. <laughs> I'd like to hear Andrew's talk. You, You'd like to hear Andrew's talk? Well, uh, Andrew, uh, Andrew and I were talking yesterday about, uh, about this evening and, uh, and, and uh, this very show. And he, also, he came to Sons of Anarchy quite late uh, and fell in love with it. And I, I think his story is, uh, is, is a great story about someone 
falling deeply in love with a TV show, as, <laughs> as people should, uh, TV being that important. So please welcome the King of the Green Guide, Andrew Murphy. Hi. Oh, sorry. Yeah, okay. there's you. Yep. Thank you. You shoot nine. Oops. Yes. Now, um, thanks for having me. Thank you. Um, I want, the first thing I want to talk about <coughs> with um, Sons of Anarchy was the fact I think it's symptomatic of how we come to TV now. I think everyone has a different story as to how they became a fan of Sons of Anarchy. It's one of those shows where it's not something that you probably would have seen on TV at night in the traditional way. Like a lot of the great shows now, it's something that you've probably heard of from a friend, someone that you know, um, online. And that's kind of how I came to Sons of Anarchy. Um, reading about it online, had, I was a massive fan of The Shield and acquired the first season um, on DVD but never sort of got that motivated to watch it for a while. One Saturday night I decided to put it on and, yeah, it was only last year, at the start of last year and was really sort of, I guess, taken aback by how bad I thought the theme music was, <laughs> how cheesy it was um, and went on to the second episode and sort of thought, eh, okay, it's not too bad. Um, but then eventually, obviously, grew to love it. And I think that one of the things that... Um, like I said, everybody has a different story as to how they come to love a show like this. And one of the things that I really liked about it was the knowingness of it. And I felt like everyone's talked about comparisons to shows. I would compare Sons of Anarchy in a way to a show that came out this year, Revenge, in that there's always an ability for the characters to speak um, with their eyes without any sort of dialogue. And you'll go into a scene and... Clay and Jax will know that the world is collapsing around them and they'll know that um, somebody's just died and they'll walk into a room of people that don't know that and they'll look at each other and they'll say, holy shit, what's going on? And they'll talk to each other through what's going on. And um, that's, that's one, of the, one of the many things that appeals to me about the show. So anyway, I watched the first season. The second season, I was on holidays last year and um, got struck down by food poisoning that confined me to bed for, I think, 36 hours. And I was overseas in Cuba, and I'd taken the DVDs with me and spent the day in bed watching season two and um, was pretty much hooked. When I got back to work, there was a um, strange phone call that I got from, from someone in our Sydney office who said that um, Fox Studios had talked about doing a trip to LA for one of their staff members to go to the set to promote the season one DVD. Turned out that the person who was going to do the trip couldn't go. Um, would I be able to go? Okay, it was Monday lunchtime, I think. The plane was leaving the next day to go to the set. So um, I spoke to my bosses, got it approved, um, and Fox would pay for the airfare and we would look after the accommodation. Turned out that I had a meeting on Friday in Sydney that I couldn't get out of. So the way that the trip worked is that I would leave on the Tuesday and be back in Sydney on the Friday. <laughs> the other complication of it was that I didn't have... My visa had expired. I had a five-year journalism visa and obviously had no time to do it. So I sort of thought, well, I'll be able to bluff my way, say I'm on holidays or whatever when I get to the US. So I turn up at customs and um, the person says to me, why are you here? And I said, oh, well, I'm on holidays. And I look at the ticket and it was leaving the next day to go <laughs> Like, who comes? And, um, yeah, so it was about half an hour. It was the, first, the closest I've felt to being arrested or sort of accosted in customs and eventually came clean and said, look, I'm a journalist but I'm not doing any work here. Um, they looked into who had actually paid for the flights. It went that far. Um, and they thought I was going for a job at Fox and, yeah... In the end, got through, got there and um, got to the hotel. And th the next day was going to be um, the visit. So I had to be up at 8am and there were four other people who were going along. And so we bundled into this minivan at 8 o'clock in the morning. We were staying in Westwood and drove over to North Hollywood. I was expecting to be going to one of the studios there, 
Paramount or one of the lots or CBS or something like that. We drive into this neighbourhood that looked probably like Seaford, something sort of industrial or maybe Footscray or something like that, and go through sort of three sets of roads, come across, and we came across this place. And you can see the gates here um, to the left of the sort of Sons of Anarchy room there. And there's a, a security guard man standing there who sort of mans the gate the whole time. But otherwise, and it doesn't, but it doesn't look conspicuous at all. It sort of looks like um, what it is, which is a, is, is a motorcycle yard. So we came in and um, there was a catering van there and the studio was sort of really dubious of, of us being there. And then eventually we sort of made contact with who was running the office. And as we found out through the day, no one really knew that we were coming or it felt like we'd sort of turned <laughs> up. We, 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 there was a man in the door who knew that we were coming, but there was no one there who really sort of expected us from the cast, the crew, to anything. So we basically milled about for about an hour. Um, it was about 30 degrees, I think. It was quite warm. And eventually a man from, um, who, who is in charge of this sort of garage here came out and said that he'd be prepared to give us a tour of the set. So if you see here to the left behind these cars here, this is the studio where all of the rooms are. So there is um, all of the houses, the cops' offices, any sort of interior scene is housed in that part there. And then that's sort of north-facing, so it faces onto a truck yard, and as you can see, it's sort of a very nondescript sort of area. This is the, where they keep the motorcycles, um, and as they film, um, it's pretty much identical. So that's inside that, that garage. They hold a lot of the bikes in there. And the day that we were there, they, they weren't filming any of the, um, the motorcycle scenes. It was all interior shots that they were doing. And you can see there, that's um, Gemma's office to the left, in the top left corner, this room here. Now, this is where we sat for most of the day while we were on the set. So... That was a strange experience in itself. I was sitting at that desk um, waiting for interviews and we were on set for about, I think, 10 hours in the end. And um, I'll take you through, actually, just ignore these ones here. <laughs> but we'll come, we'll come back to those. But this is the notepad that's in, um, that was on Gemma's desk and I thought this was amusing <laughs> that someone, um, one of the cast members, had obviously had some um, uh, very highbrow humour there. But I'll come back to... Sorry. Yep. So, anyway, so basically we sort of waited around, got our tour, and the set was pretty self-contained. It was quite large for for a cable cable show. Um, you find with oft, often a lot of the Australian shows, um, there's numerous things going on in the one sort of building. I'm sure some of you guys have been to sets, whatever. But there was a there was a sort of a, a feel with this one that. Um, it was a very tight-knit team. Um, it was, they were filming a particularly intense scene that day and it really felt like um, they were sort of... They were up to episode eight of season four the day I was there. So they were really up and about and you can tell that they're sort of really on song. And, no, and not having seen a minute of season four and having loved it after I eventually saw it, you could tell that they were really happy with how it was going, particularly after season three was so divisive to a lot of people. And this is one of the um, police officers' um, rooms there. So basically, in that sort of madman vibe, they are really strict in trying to have everything, no matter how minute the detail is, that it's genuine and it's right. So things that you would never see up on screen are kept sort of um, really well maintained up close. This is the um, scene that we, um, the main part of the, the area, I guess, that on, on the set. And it's built with, sort of, it's about two or three storeys high, and it's built with sort of walls partitioned, and you can sort of see through cracks as to what's going on. Um, and when we eventually got to see a scene being filmed, it was in this part here, and it happened to be um, when Juice was getting um, his stripes with um, clay. And it was quite an emotive um, sort of scene. They shot it about ten times um, when we were there. Um, and this is, yeah, the other side of the, um, of the clubhouse. So 
often the actors will, um, as the other scenes are going, they just sort of make the most of the <laughs> facilities there. One of the things that we got to do was to go into the prop room and this was the prop that was used in the first season um, to burn a tattoo off um, a member's back, um, which was quite a, a, a gruesome scene. But um, they're quite proud of this one. It, looks, um, it looked, I think, pretty real in, in the show itself. Um, and that's the skateboard that was infamously used, as we saw in um, Clementine's <laughs> clip there. Now, I enjoyed this as well. This is their cocaine stash, and obviously, um, <laughs> they're sort of subtle about, and the fake money. And this is a set of testicles that, he, um, that we used as, as a prop. Um, right throughout the whole set, there's things like this where I was taking these photos a bit off the radar. We were told not to take photos, but I couldn't help myself. And so when I went to the bathroom a couple of times, I sort of wandered around and, um, yeah, and found that, that really good. One of the things that was interesting was that the show is um, obviously got a worldwide fan base, the, the fact they were prepared to have Australian people on there. But judged on how we felt being on the set, there was little priority sort of given to the Australian market. They don't see it as, I guess something that's a big part of the show. They see pretty much the, the US and outside of that they don't really have so much sort of um, excitement for, I suppose, which was a bit, I found a little bit disappointing at the time. But one of the things that um, was interesting as well, that being on there, was they had catering and, and lunch vans all together. So they, this smoothie truck pulled up at about three in the afternoon and we st were still waiting for interviews and nothing had really happened. We'd been there all day. And then all the cast sort of filed out. And I joined the line with, of the smoothie truck with the cast, which was <laughs> pretty fun. Um, I think I was sort of standing next to the man um, whose name I can't remember the character, who's fascinated with um, masturbation. Uh, uh, I've his name. Yeah. There you go. Yes. Um, so, yeah, so that, that was, that was an, another <laughs> pretty exciting thing. Um, what I was saying with the sort of interviews, when, we were, when I agreed to do the trip and when we sort of organised it through work, they said that we would be able to interview um, Ron Perlman, Jax, um, Gemma and Tara. They were the four interviews for the day. Um, Jax at the time was having trouble with the studio, um, having a lot of trouble with the show. He shaved his head. Um, there were a lot of issues going on there and he decided that he was too sick to do interviews that day, so we didn't speak to Jax. Um, Ron Perlman, also, who is a, is, is a rather strange cat. A lot of the, um, a lot of the, I'll get to back to those, a lot of the um, cast ride bikes, because most of them didn't ride bikes before they started, some of them did. And in the parking lot here, as you can see, with Jax, that's the cast, that's, the cast have their own parking spot, and that's his bike that he rides to work every day. And I'd say about 80% of the, the cast um, ride bikes, except for Ron Perlman, who drives a Mercedes <laughs> and hates bikes. Um, so, yeah, so Ron Perlman, unfortunately, we didn't get to speak to. I spoke to him on the phone a couple of weeks later, but he um, was so sick that he couldn't speak to us either. But we saw him walking his little shih tzu frequently around um, set. So he was at probably about hit from me to the screen away and unfortunately uh, was unable to uh, summon up the courage to talk to us, which was disappointing. However, we finally did get to talk to um, Katie Segal and she was terrific to talk to. There were three things I was nervous about talking to her about. I wasn't sure how she felt about Married with Children and the legacy of that, whether she would be you know, into talking about Peggy, she was, um, and I guess that there was the, the matter of the rape scene I wanted to talk about, um, and she was happy to talk about pretty much anything else. So she turned into um, a reasonably good story. story. I, I think I'll put on the website the link to the story that I wrote from it. Um, yeah, I'll we'll link to it from the box cutter's site yeah, yeah, as well. Yeah, from the thing. Um, the other interview that I did was with um, Tara Maggie Siff, and she was terrific. Um, she's obviously a, a Broadway actress. Um, she, I guess that she 
had come from Mad Men um, early on in the show. She was doing, I think she was doing both shows at the same time for a little while there. So she sort of saw it as a bit of a low rent sort of show to be doing, I think. She needed to be convinced to do it. Um, I asked her about the show's, I guess, the torrid saga that the show is in terms of it's exhausting for the characters, you know, and a lot of the time the characters say, will this ever end? And one of the things with her, when I said to her, you know, is it, is it draining to film this show? Um, she just laughed and said, no, not at all. So <laughs> it's, it's one of those things where um, she takes it very differently, to say, to um, Katie Segal, who, you know, was much more earnest about it um, and much more sort of forthright about the show. And it, obviously she has a lot of connection being married to the writer and creator of the show. Anyway, so I'll go back Al to... Al Bundy. <laughs> um, yeah, and that was one of the things I talked to her about as well because obviously her husband being the creator of the show and him writing that arc of the rape scene was a big leap of faith because, you know, to throw your wife as an actor into, into a scene like that and into a storyline and a season-long storyline like that I thought was a pretty big call. But she was adamant that she thought the story warranted it enough and I think that she was right in the end the way that it sort of paved out. But yeah, um, we did get a tour of the costume room eventually and um, I'll be indulgent enough to put a picture of myself in the... Uh, <coughs> <laughs> with the photo there. And um, yeah, this is... For me to end now, this is the scene that I saw um, filmed. And like I say, it was about ten times that it was that it was taken through, and um, yeah, it was a terrific experience. So I'll be happy to take questions later on, but um, thanks very much. Thank you. Would you like to come, Jack? Sure. On the I'm welcome. couch of beverage mm -hmm. and <coughs> snacks, of course, yes. outside in the hallway. Uh, It's interesting that you say that about Katie Seagal thinking that it was a storyline that was warranted, and I would agree with that. Mm. I read an article um, a couple of days ago about um, the use of rape in filmic narratives and in TV as purely just like this kind of like challenge that women need to overcome. And Clem Basto wrote something really, really funny about... Um, films in Hollywood and this, like the trope of the strong female character and how it, it's, it's really like this isolating, very, very narrow idea of what women can be on screen. And she said you'd be surprised by, which well, was like you actually wouldn't be surprised by how many script, script pictures begin with, well, a woman is traumatically raped and <laughs> seeks revenge on her assailants. Um, but the, this particular article mentioned the rapes arc in mm -hmm. Sons of Anarchy and about how it was it was central to the story and how it was really um, there was no it, it, it wasn't done in a titillating kind of way it wasn't done because there was no other kind of storyline that you could use as a foil for everything that needed to happen but I think it's interesting as well a lot of us watch or have watched these sort of shows be it Breaking Bad Mad Men Sons of Anarchy when you just come into it late you get to watch a whole bunch mm. in a row and it's a really different experience to watching... If you started watching Sons of Anarchy the first week and you watched it week by week and just waited, it's a really different experience to watching it all in one go. And season mm. two I watched in a matter of two days or something. And I found Same. that incredibly draining because I loved it, like I loved every minute of it, but I thought it was even more emotive perhaps because you're watching it consecutively and you're watching the story mm. sort of unfold. I don't know if anyone's seen this week's episode of Mad Men was on in the US. Has anyone seen it? Uh, someone, someone right up the back has. Yes. No, no, no. Well, I won't say anything except to say that um, it's an incredible... Um, yeah, I think that's... The show this year, Mad Men, this season, has been about the women, particularly um, Peggy. And I think that... Yeah, no one's seen it, so I can't really say anything. But <laughs> there is... There's, I think when you see it... Um, you'll understand what I'm talking about. So think back to this now, when you actually watch that episode. You go, okay. And if, if you haven't watched any of Mad Men yet, and then you get to it in four years' time, <laughs> really just think back to yeah. this moment here. You understand yeah. what he meant. But TV really is a place where women can mm -hmm. 
have incredibly um, rich and generous storylines given to them in a way that they're just not really given in film because in an hour and a half, why are you going to waste time telling a story between you know two women like Tara and Gemma? And I don't, I don't believe that, by the way. And that's why you see a Glenn Close on a season of The Shield or Damages or um, you, know, you see incredible actresses who previously, say a decade plus ago, would never have considered TV. Mm. Um, are happy to sign up for a season or to be sort of headlining shows. Well, CCH Pounder on, on mm. The Shield, mm. uh, that role was written for a man. Mm. She went in, grabbed it, made it her own, uh, because television could give th- that opportunity that uh, she wouldn't really get anywhere else. I think that's... what is. I, I think television is magical. I, I'm putting it out there. I love it. I think it's... Uh, such a a unique part of our entertainment culture that gives us opportunities to to explore situations like that, but also gives talent the opportunity to to explore things that they wouldn't ordinarily get to explore. You know, I don't know any world in which Kurt Sutter would be able to write uh, soppy drama in, uh, in a motion picture because he would go into a pitch meeting looking the way he does and not be taken seriously for, a, for, for an extraordinary drama like Sons of Anarchy is, mm. uh, as, as far as that, that like level of melodrama. Uh, with television being as magical as it is, yes. and you working as the king of the grand guard. Uh, it's a weird title, but yes. It's, I'm not the head of Fairfax. <laughs> I don't give out the titles. So. Uh, do you still get excited every time you visit a set? Um, yes, yeah. Uh, well, sometimes, yeah. I'll, yeah, I'll say eighty <laughs> percent of the time, yes. I mean, it's it's really interesting. It, it, studios, I feel like they use it as a trick in a, in a lot of ways because often you go to a story, do a story on a show that you're really unenthusiastic about, um, but if you were given that access and you're able to appreciate the vision of the creator of the show, you're able to talk to the cast, you're able to see where it's made, how it's made, how it's put together, and then you're eventually able to watch the scenes that you saw them make. Um, it's a good trick because they know that you're, that you're gonna be invested in it because you know, you've sort of been, feel like you've been part of it in a way. Um, I've seen some really, really um, depressing sets. I've seen some really exciting sets, but I think that one of the things I wanted to talk about was Bikey Wars, mm. because I visited the Bikey Wars set in December last year. Has everybody been watching Bikey Wars on Channel 10? No. Don't bother Mostly me. knows a nod from that guy. He's not yeah. really happy about it, but he's watching it. <laughs> now, in the aid of tonight, I watched the whole season of that, all six episodes oh, of Bikey Wars. Better man than I am. Um, it actually gets better. Season. Sorry, season episode, the fourth of fifth episode. <laughs> oh, God! Uh, I'm not going that far through it. How many writing montages can my, I take? My suggestion would be just skip, skip the rest and then start watching again episode four, perhaps. So from, from next week on? Yeah. All right. I'll Is it just up. Underbelly on Wheels? That's, I haven't seen that's any what of they, they, they wanted. To, I feel like that they wanted an Australian Sons of Anarchy. I mean, if anyone's seen the theme music, it's ridiculously der- derivative of um, Sons of Anarchy, except Diesel wrote the song. Oh, did he? He did, yeah. Oh, Mark bless. Bizzot. Um And, yeah, when I, went to the, when I went to the set of that, it was strange. It felt like someone had actually been to the Sons of Anarchy set because there was a, when you walked in to the, to the room, there was actually an office and it had very similar signs in terms of the administrative part of it. And then when, but when you got out the back... It turned out that it was the same set that was shooting Crownies, which was a terrible oh. show. And, um, yeah, so they were sharing sort of half a room and it was pretty much much more... Lauren and Outlaws, together at last. Yeah. It was where they'd filmed Razor earlier in the year as well, Underbelly Razor, so... Right, so somewhere that gets a lot of use. Yeah, screen it's, time, yeah. Uh, we've talked a lot about the women on the show and, and, uh, and it is... Surprisingly, for for the subject matter, is a show that is largely about women, but there are men who who are vital to the storytelling that are not Jax and and Clay, and and I think they're they're probably more important than Jax and Clay, 
uh, people like Bobby Elvis, mm -hmm. uh, the 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 team that well, I think, supports. I think we should talk about Opie. And Opie, that's. I mean, to me, he's um, a great character, and um, he can get a lot of emotion through a beard. He can. But <laughs> he's even so handsome. the beanie radiates off. Um, I, thought, I thought you would. <laughs> So handsome. <laughs> <laughs> no, he, I, and I think he, the scene with his wife, where his wife, the first wife dies, is um, yeah, up there with the, the best of the show. I just have to say this. I, I won't say who said it. We'll stop talking about men and two women just left. Someone said to me, can you imagine what it would be like to spoon with Opie? You'd be the little spoon and he'd be such a big spoon it'd be like a soup ladle. <laughs> oh. I was like, oh, I want to curl up in this little soup ladle. <laughs> would, he, would he flip his beard above your head or tuck it underneath? Well, it's a bit shorter in the first couple of series. Right, it is. Although I did like the, uh, the whole November rain look that Lila rocked at the wedding. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, so I, I, started, I started watching it and I really didn't like it. I didn't like it at all. I watched the first three episodes uh, on Box Cutters, which is the podcast that I do. We have a rule that you have to watch three episodes before you can really judge uh, a show. I've since thrown that rule out because, uh, yeah, three episodes... It's a lot of commitment. Uh, the, uh, and so I watched the first three episodes and I didn't like it. And, and then I watched a whole lot more of it for this. And was fighting against liking it. Uh, because I didn't like it to start with. And so I'm never wrong. Until last night I'm watching an, uh, an episode and going... And I actually went, oh no! And I realised I was hooked. Mm. It's the song that puts it's, people off, mm. you know, the it's opening a, song. But having said that now, I've, I love the song so much and when I heard it when, when really? we were here, yeah, I'm like, I can't wait for season five. That makes me so excited. Because it's, it's, it's a, so that song, the, uh, the opening credits of Firefly, uh, the uh, opening credits of uh, Star Trek Enterprise, all have terribly like middle of the road, uh, kind of pop country, mm. pop country rock style songs that I think have just turned people off. This is, this Sons is, of Anarchy is kind of this survived is, despite it. This is a song that they would listen to. This is the, their kind of music. So this is their... Mm. And that's why know. I'm not friends with them. No. Like but they do... But, well, it's one of the reasons, yes. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> that they never invite me to their parties. They, they have... Um, I really enjoy the, the montage scenes that they do at the mm. end. I think that they're really, like, beautifully manipulative. And, um, so where's someone sleeping on a bed, there's someone sort of sitting at a bar yeah. contemplating Some, life. Yeah, you know, wondering yeah. Where, what to do next. And, you know, there's been some great music that gets played in the final closing mm. scenes of Sons of Anarchy, not so great in the opening yep. credits. But, but just going back to the Opie thing, that whole notion of brotherhood and sticking by the family, it takes... You must really be in the family mindset to find out that one of your brothers was responsible yeah. for the assassination of your wife and be able to move past that and stay within the club. Mm. Yeah, I don't think Opie moves past anything. I think he builds it all up in, into just so much rage inside it. And then sometimes the rage is just quelled with a little bit of melanta and... <laughs> Uh, and sometimes it comes out, when it comes out, he grits his teeth. So, but he's... I think Opie is a fascinating character because so much shit happens to him and he takes fall after fall after fall for the Brotherhood. Uh, at some point, he is just going to... He's going to pop more than anyone expects. Can I, can but he's I, a lifer. You know, he grew up with his dad, was in the club, and that was the life that was kind of, mm. he knew and that he was planned out for him. You can see that the, his son will probably end up in, I don't know what's going to happen with his daughter, that's always an interesting premise. But when, he's, when his teeth are ground away to nothing, <laughs> is, do you think he's like, he's going, what is this all for? Like, <laughs> at some point. I think we'll uh, open it up for, for questions and comments now. There is a microphone uh, that will be brought out to you. 
Uh, so we'll bring the house lights up. Uh, please wait for the microphone because this is being recorded for an Acme podcast. Uh, anybody have questions or comments? One thing I'll say as well is that when a show changes its theme song at all, I think that's a bad thing. And when this show sort of did the Irish thing, it wasn't good. Yeah. yeah. Only thing it it sig signalled the bad, the bad ep, the bad era of the show, and it came back to being good when it when it ba went back to the original. Worked uh, in the wire. Same song though, but different recordings of it. For each weeds, season. weeds did that as well. I hated when Weeds did it. When they remember they changed. They, they stopped. They stopped going from little boxes. Oh, mm. the, every episode had different people. Singing every episode it. they had a different, yeah. had yeah. a different version. If, if you want to talk about intense, the first live in the studio I ever did was for the Wire, and I, um, I'd been booked to do it, and I was like, yeah, it'd be fine. It's, it's, it's this far away, and it, the date kept coming closer and closer, and I realised about ten days beforehand that I still needed to watch the last four seasons <gasps> and you know luckily I freelanced but it was just it was like <laughs> 10 hours a day and those are hour-long episodes and they're really intense just like five days straight of just watching The Wire. <laughs> I, was, uh, I was watching episodes of Sons of Anarchy on my iPad while at work uh, and just praying that nobody actually noticed. Uh, no one said anything so Either I do good work or they're just really bad employers. Uh, any questions or comments? Anyone at all? What do you like about Sons of Anarchy? Uh, what do you <coughs> hate about my commentary on Sons of Anarchy? Uh, anything. Nothing. All done. All silent. Is that no? <laughs> all right, we'll uh, refer it to the vendor. Um, that pretty much brings us to the end. It's so shy, the audience, Sean. Mm. So shy. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> no, you, what's your what's your Opie question? So that's the thing is actually filming. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to land you in it. I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll confer. I, I it's it's given me a lot of comfort that image though, the past few nights. <laughs> <laughs> Opie ladle. <laughs> You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings of talks and live events, go to Acme Channel and the Acme website.